This week's guest is Josh Cormier, who's the founder and distiller from Pepperell Distillery Company in Moorfield, Ontario. Originally born and raised in London, Ontario, Josh first started experimenting with distilling and brewing while attending university. Over the years, Josh found himself working in several wineries and breweries, which eventually led to him opening up a distillery just prior to the start of the COVID pandemic. It's a pretty interesting conversation that you're definitely going to like. And make sure you check out the links for our Pepperell Distillery in the show notes. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm Kip. This is Dan. What is going on? Not much, man. Just uh, enjoying another fine, fine day. Mm-hmm. And you? How are things going with you? Same old shit, yep. Wonderful. Just moving along, moving along. Trying to keep one bar open and get another one open. But yeah, we have a great guest as usual. Uh, we're going to have Josh Cormier joining us very shortly um, from Pepperell Distillery. Just get the housekeeping out of the way right now. If you like what you're hearing here on the Industry Podcast, and obviously you do, you should subscribe, rate, and review. That really helps us out. And if you'd like to be on the show, you got a story to tell, DM us at the Industry Podcast. And of course, as always, big shout out to Zach Hanna of at Zach Hanna Design for all the great artwork he does for us. And as always, there'll be links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. I like those links. Okay, so without further ado, let's bring in our guest today, Josh Cormier. How you doing, Josh? Good, good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah, thanks for thanks. joining. Yeah. Just to get started here, let's talk to us a little bit about the distillery, where you're located, what kind of products you're currently making. Sure. Yeah, we're located in uh, Moorfield, Ontario, which um, probably most people haven't heard of. But I always say if you're if you're driving from Col- or to Collingwood uh, from Kitchener, it's right in the middle. So it's, it's pretty close to Arthur, Listwell, and in that, that area. So we're pretty new. Uh, we've been working at getting set up, and we're still kind of in the process of getting set up. Uh, COVID kind of threw us off a little bit there as mm-hmm. with a lot of distilleries, we kind of took a little sidetrack and did a hand sanitizer for a while. Oh. But as of around September, October, we we kind of went back into the spirits and uh, are really starting to grow that side, which was the original side of the business. So, so you didn't get into this for the love of hand sanitizer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it could be a really interesting way to roundabout get into the sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what kind of, what are you currently distilling or, and do you have anything new in the pipe? Yeah, so right now uh, we have uh, gin. So we've been doing the gin for a while. Back before the distillery was really a distillery, it was just like kind of a pet project. We were doing contract distilling. And so the gin was a, a recipe that I developed back in like 2015. But we, re- we also recently just released a vodka. And it's uh, it's made 100% from molasses. So it's pretty unique. It's also triple pot distilled. So mm. it's uh, it's noticeably different in the in the realm of vodkas. It's been doing pretty well. So what what uh, was behind the decision to go with the molasses-based vodka? Because that is pretty unique. Molasses, it was partly pragmatic and partly just not really caring for the typical rules of things. Right. <laughs> um, as you guys probably know, like n- normally vodka would be made from uh, starch or, uh, well, some sort of starch. So you're looking at uh, grain or potatoes or something like that. Mm. And uh, people like Ciroc have kind of caused a little bit of controversy in the past for making it from a sugar-based so I decided, well, one, we don't have the equipment to use the starches. And right. because we're starting up, like that that equipment's pretty expensive. Like um, the big column stills? Well, not or? well, we don't have a column still. We have a pot still. So yeah, you're yeah, right there. Yeah. But even like the 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 mashes and stuff, like we can't we don't have the ability to work with grain yet. So we can't mash oh, okay. anything. Right. So we're kind of right now forced to use sugar as the base starting material because mm-hmm. we can't convert those starches to sugars through mashing. 
Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was, so the idea was partially pragmatic just because we don't have the equipment and partially just like, Hey, this is a fun, neat idea. And part of our brand, like it originated in the East coast. And so molasses is really big out there. We've sourced Crosby's molasses, which is out of Newfoundland. So it's kind of tying back to some of the themes that the distillery started with was Hmm. the East coast heritage. Mm -hmm. What sort of effect do you find that it has on the flavor of the vodka? The flavor there's almost, it's, it's a little bit like almost a smoky quality a little bit. Like it's actually interesting when I'm distilling it, I can see that some of the ash from the process of making the molasses usually remains in the part um, that doesn't end up in the vodka. So the leftover garbage that I just get rid of, right. um, you can kind of see some ash in there. So there's a little bit of a smoky quality to it, almost a mineral stone quality. But then I'd say even, even the more interesting aspect to me is really the mouthfeel that you're left with. It's really got quite a bit more body than your average vodka, mm. which is partially molasses, but then that's partially also the pot distilling too. We're just not, we're not stripping literally everything out in the same way that a lot of vodkas are. Right. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about the gin as well, to, about how would you describe that? And we did watch a cool video on your... Um, Ulysses from Fur. Yeah, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. On your website there. Ulysses has been a guest on the show before. So yeah. you can check that out in the um, industry podcast archives. So do that. Um, yeah, that yeah. was a great episode. That's actually how I heard about you guys. Was oh, really? Ulysses. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, so, and we worked with him a bit back when we were just kind of doing the contract distilling. So, like, now I work for the company full-time, but back then I had a full-time job and I was just doing this part-time. Yeah. Yeah. So, a quick question. When you say contract distilling, is that just doing, like, small batch stuff for other companies or how do, what is that? Sir, I guess I should have explained that, yeah. (laughs) When I'm saying contract distilling, like, we had an arrangement with another distillery that I would go in and I would basically rent their still. Um, to make our product. And then we, we'd use all their licensing. So in effect, I was basically making their product and then I had a license to sell their products. And so we just kind of had an agreement, like it was all them, but I would sell it. And then we had an agreement worked out between between the two of us. So how would you describe your gin and, and how it might be different from the other products on the market? The gin is modern. So there's a lot of citrus in it. I've stripped down like the process of, of developing the gin recipe, I started with just a ton of different ingredients. And basically over the years while I was working on the business plan and just working on refining kind of uh, the, the recipe, what I did was I just stripped everything away bit by bit because I kept realizing like all this was here and it wasn't adding to the flavor. It was like, actually kind of detracting from some of the cleanness of the flavor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, like all gins, we do have uh, juniper as the, as the main component. But I'm trying to bring out a lot more of the sweet component of the juniper as opposed to the Christmas tree component. So to kind of complement the juniper, there's a little bit of cinnamon in there. There's some citrus. The cardamom's a big one, which gives a little bit of a nice minty aspect. So it's still got like, you, you wouldn't mistake it for not a gin, but compared to some of the more old school style gins, we're lower on the Christmas tree pine needle threshold mm-hmm. um, and a little bit higher on kind of more of the sweet fruit, sweet spice, that kind of realm. Oh, cool. Sounds like it'd be good in cocktails. Yeah, it works quite well in cocktails. Yeah. When you're mentioning pot stills, I just started thinking about whiskey. But so are, do you have, are you have any plans in the future to get into some other type of spirits? Absolutely. Like the reason that I originally, when I was coming up with the business plan to start this business, my passion was really for making whiskey. Mm-hmm. But as I was developing the business plan, I just realized like the expense of getting into that right away 
Okay. It was just not something that was feasible for me. Right. And I, I, not to interrupt you, but I think that, uh, so from my understanding of the, why a lot of distilleries go from vodka and gin first is you got to get a product out there so then you can go and maybe try and age some stuff later, right? Because the problem with whiskey is it's got to be aged at least three years. Now, what are you selling in those three years waiting for your product to be ready? Well, 100%. I, I mean, and not only that, like, I know this, some. there's a lot of distilleries out there that start with, it, it's usually somebody who has a lot of money mm-hmm. who also enjoys alcohol. Right. And so they're able to to kind of get all of the really fancy and nice equipment up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not how Peprel was started at all. Right. Uh, I had absolutely no money, but I had a foundation and education in alcohol. Mm-hmm. So my philosophy has always been like, I don't need fancy equipment to make a good product because... I know how to use the bare bones equipment. Like people have been doing this for hundreds of years. I mean, distilling maybe it's a little over a thousand years, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like you don't need super high technology to make a good quality product, but it's also going to be a lot harder if you don't have the good technology and don't have the education. Right. Right. Let's talk a little bit about starting this up. Like even just, I can imagine like pot still, that can't be cheap. So like what kind of, you don't have to give us exact numbers if you don't want to, but what kind of a startup cost are you looking at? Well, I mean, so we did it because we did contract distilling and we did it a very slow growth kind of proof of concept. And then like, can we make a go of this kind of way? I would say like, if you're going to start up a distillery, realistically, you should have minimum have like $200,000 ready to invest in that. We, right. we never at one point had that in our bank mm. account ready right. to go. Our, our story has been a lot more of like, I approached, I think, five people originally that I knew who, who had skills and in other areas that I thought could be valuable to the team and ask for very small investments just to kind of see if we could do it. And as we've grown and as we've kind of seen positive signs and been able to kind of grow in the right directions, we've looked for other places to kind of find funding and do that. But it is a massive part of the game is figuring out like, how do you pay for all this? Because you don't just like, you don't just open up and all of a sudden you got a million dollars worth of sales. You got to prove that you have something first Mm-hmm. And then you get the sales. So it's something that we're constantly thinking about and constantly making sure that we can fund what we want to achieve. And a lot of that is just kind of like fun stuff with regards to marketing and stuff like that. Right. And so what's your strategy for marketing? For marketing? I mean, honestly, we're we're still learning that. But one of the big things that we're starting to do right now is figuring out what are other interesting industries that we can partner with. So for example, we've just done a few uh, video series where I just make a quick cocktail and I use um, a glass from the Canadian Clay and Glass Gallery in Uptown Waterloo. So that way we're working with some local artists and stuff, showcasing some of their glassware and we get to have a bit of fun doing it. So like I actually went in and filmed a couple videos and I mean, the videos aren't super high quality. It's still just me like filming by myself because of COVID. So I got my (laughs) phone up there and I'm filming it and then Uh, One of my partners helps me edit and stuff. So we're doing stuff like that. Uh, We also just uh, recently partnered with uh, the Canadian Fashion Film Festival. Oh, cool. So that's that's pretty cool because uh, they got some really interesting capabilities that we don't have just with regards to like media and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that, that just happened like last week, basically, that we solidified that. So they're already starting to release some really interesting media that uh, that's really excellently done. Yeah, that's awesome. So a lot of our strategy, I guess, to sum up is really just like kind of partnering with other people that we think could be fun. Mm-hmm. And is also maybe a little bit incongruous in a sense to the alcohol industry, but also kind of fits. Like I like the idea of partnering with other art 
music, fashion, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit and talk about how you got into this in the first place. You were out in Halifax. Is that sort of where this kind of got started? Yeah, so I did, uh, I did a philosophy degree at Dalhousie in Halifax. And while I was doing that degree, I worked at a brew-your-own beer and wine store the entire time. The stores were like... I'm sure every, most people have probably been to one and like they range from really just like wine kits, just a bag of juice that mm-hmm. you pour into a bucket. But these ones, it was, it was the Noble Grape. Uh, they're a small chain out there or maybe even a large. I don't know. They got like six or seven stores. They did a lot more. They were interested in, in also selling to people who were actually interested in like producing their own alcohol versus just pouring something into a bucket. So like you could mm-hmm. get your own grains to make your to make all grain beers and this is before it was oh, really wow. popular too and they also started selling little air stills for for water purification because of course home distillation was illegal right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of when i started to get into it and consider it as a possible avenue for my career going forward mm-hmm. and so you start off making your own beer and wine and i and i uh, read in your bio that you were also doing wset courses at the same time so at that time point, I'm guessing you're kind of thinking maybe you're going to take this in the direction of making wine. Yeah, well, it happened. So I was in Halifax for the philosophy while doing the, the working at the Brew Your Own shop. And then I moved mm-hmm. to Vancouver specifically for the W set. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing the W set, I was also working at like a high-end uh, wine store. And I was just finding that like sales wasn't really for me. Like I'm not great at just like naturally interacting with people in that capacity right. um i'm not i'm not a good salesperson in it by any means and I, I i was also doing some landscaping on the side and i realized i really loved the physical aspect of landscaping but i also really loved like the the kind of i don't know food gustatory aspect of 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 the w set and i wanted to combine the two so i started applying to niagara college and brock university to try to get into their winemaking programs right and then i got into brock uh, and uh, moved back to Ontario and uh, went there for several years. Right. So what are they teaching you in like a winemaking course at, at, a, at a university? Yeah, it's very academic. So like one of my friends who I went to Brock with, he had actually previously done the Niagara course and he kind of compared the two. He said like at Niagara, you really learned like the how to make the wine and at Brock, you learned the why. So it was very like scientific. It, like, it's basically, it's um, like... Uh, bi- biochemistry is really what the what the degree more or less is just right. with a focus on um, grapes and fermentation and stuff like that but like a lot of the courses I had to take were just general science like I had to take organic chemistry and analytical chemistry and human biology which I didn't really understand <laughs> but I had to take it because that's how universities are set up so yeah it was a very academic kind of learning um, which is interesting but I was I found I found the ways of thinking just like in the wine industry a little bit strict like there wasn't there wasn't a huge willingness to explore ideas that hadn't already been done in a sense. Um, uh, yeah, that's interesting you said. I think that's true. Like, do you get the odd winemaker who tries to do some unusual things, but uh, especially with like hybrid grapes and whatever. But then they those wines tend to like rate poorly with like the wine snobs who give the reviews, right? So yeah, that's that's why people end up just going back to the classics. Well, it's a challenge, like. Mm. It, for some reason, like, I mean, I think it's probably built upon the the systems that have evolved in France in particular and Italy and stuff like that, where they're, they're, they're very regimented. If you want to use the term Bordeaux on your wine, you have to be growing certain grapes. You have to be growing them a certain way. I believe they even dictate when you can harvest them. 
So you don't have a lot of flexibility there. And I remember at one point asking one of my profs in university about a specific technique. And I was like, well, what have you applied? I can't remember what the technique was. It was one maybe more commonly associated with, with uh, red wine. I was like, what if you applied the same technique to white? And the answer was basically, you don't do that. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but like, let's, in theory, what if somebody did? <laughs> yeah. You don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's true. It's very strict. And um, so it, it, at that point, you're starting to think, okay, well, maybe like you would, were, were thinking about a, a career in winemaking. Now you're maybe shifting focus as you're feeling a little bit more restricted or did, was there something else that pushed you towards distilling? You know, distilling, a distillery always just kind of appealed to me because there's, I'm interested in, in, in making anything. Like I love to cook at home and I, and I love to make, I've made wine, beer and spirits all professionally now, but in terms of like pragmatically actually opening up a business, like I couldn't even conceive of how I would have enough money to buy a winery. Like right. yeah. you, you have to start like with huge money out of the gate in a winery. Mm-hmm. And then with a distillery too, the nice thing is you also avoid some of the difficulties that you have with beer in terms of like, I can make a bottle of gin and that bottle of gin is literally never going to go bad. Like my buddy found a bottle of gin at his grandmother's house that we speculated was from the seventies and it Ooh. still tasted fine. Like it just, they're stable products, right? They yes. change a little bit over time, but not in a, not in a hugely meaningful way. Like you couldn't have a beer from the seventies. You I don't even know what happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I like how you, well, you kind of mentioned this in your bio as well, how you compared it to cooking and it's like, you've never really been interested in just learning to cook one thing. You kind of want to learn about all the different ways to cook stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I've always found it a little bit peculiar because, as I said, like I, I've 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 made beer professionally, I've made wine professionally, I've now made spirits professionally, and I found like with beer and wine in particular, there was very little crossover in terms of like making the other product. I would say like most wine makers drink beer, most beer makers don't necessarily drink wine, but neither seem to have a particularly huge interest in making the other one's product. Right. I wonder why that is. So let's talk about exactly why, who you were making beer for, who you were making wine for. I'm kind of interested in that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so wine, I started, um, I started out when I got to uh, Ontario uh, in the actual production of wine. I started out in the vineyards. So I was working for Constellation. So they own Jackson Triggs, Inniskillen, a whole bunch of other brands. They're they're (laughs) massive. So I was actually, I worked there for a few years, uh, just working the fields with Mexican migrant workers, which was a really interesting experience because it was literally just like me and a dozen Mexican guys. I didn't speak Spanish and they didn't really speak English. We found (laughs) ways to communicate. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it was, it was fun. They were, they're a great group of guys. It was incredibly hard work. Like I couldn't believe I had the ability to just come and go. They worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. Sometimes, sometimes like six and a half days a week. It was, it was unbelievable. So that was kind of my start. Mm-hmm. Then I ended up working for Calamus, which is a which is a smaller winery uh, in Niagara. And so there, they were especially at the time. I think they've changed a little bit now. I know the ownership's changed, but at the time they had a few employees, and we basically would be doing the tasting room and then going in the back doing like pump overs with the wine and stuff. Uh, next day, maybe out in the fields helping do some pruning and stuff like that. So it was really like kind of do everything, everything uh, on that scale, wear a lot of different hats. And what are some of the diff- other differences you would have noticed between like moving from like sort of a massive operation, the Jackson Triggs Collective, whatever you said that they were called, and going to, to a smaller, more independent winery? 
Well, I mean, you have a you have a much better ability to communicate with the people. Like it, they they just operate on a fundamentally different basis. Like I could have an idea at Calamus and I could suggest it, and and maybe they wouldn't take take me up on that idea or maybe they would but at the very least it would be contemplated mm. and i know a few times like i had an influence on what style of wine actually ended up being made because especially like in the alcohol industry often you'll have something go wrong and you say well we can't just scrap all of this product can we make it into something good right. and so that's what that's really an opportunity to kind of let let your creativity shine because throughout my career there's been multiple examples where something messes up with making something and you're like how can we turn this around and so like with a smaller place, you can absolutely say like, well, what if we did this? And I had the same experience um, at Grand River Brewing when I was there, which is also a smaller brewery. What if we do this? And and you can kind of work with that to, to get an excellent product in the end that's kind of fun and new and creative. Whereas at the bigger places, like there's just no, there's no feedback there, right? right. I remember working on one vineyard where they were growing, they were like absolutely set on growing Shiraz. But like this really comes down to, it was interesting to see like really what a microclimate is the Shiraz grapes would just die. And it was beside like a Cabernet or something like that. And they'd be fine. But the head office and marketing had decided that they wanted this entire vineyard to be Shiraz. And I was like, well, they're all going to die. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it just doesn't work here. Mm -hmm. But I mean, who am I going to say that to? Nobody, right. <laughs> nobody, nobody I could have said that to would have cared because it's not their job to care. Right. And so the people who are at the specific at the specific vineyard, they're not even, they don't even have the decision-making capability at that level to be like, look, this isn't going to work. These are all going to die. The climate's not right. Yeah. Like even so, to my memory, like even the managers that I worked with who like were overseeing the vineyard operations, they didn't get to choose what grape was planted where. I mean, I was low level, so I wasn't, sure. I wasn't in those conversations, but from uh -huh. what I could glean, it was mostly being dictated by marketing. Cause they say, well, we want to have a Shiraz with, with uh, this, vineyard's name on it right and hey, like well, a time when shiraz is hot the big australian it, ex yeah yeah exactly so, <laughs> that's funny so you actually be crazy just like even if you're one of the managers at these vineyards and you're just like yeah we're just gonna waste a whole shit ton of grapes out here <laughs> it, it, it honestly blew my mind i was like but like this just doesn't this fundamentally doesn't make sense but that's mm -hmm. what like that's what happens when you have marketing dictating production yeah especially in that capacity like sometimes it makes sense but mm -hmm. in that case, not really, because you're just fighting against nature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and those, those those battles always end well. well like, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, that, that, is, that is honestly crazy. I didn't even think about it. But you also have to have like a, just a shit ton of money to be able to fuck up like that and not have it really affect you either. Like, Well, I mean, that's it. And like, if you look at like what Constellation actually does, the vineyards that I was working don't really account for any of their profit. Because they make their money off of like the international Canadian blends. So they just buy oh. bulk grapes, blend them with bulk juice from that's cheap from overseas and sell that at like eight or 10 bucks a bottle. That's right. their money maker. And then they have like their prestige vineyards mm -hmm. where they can just throw endless amounts of money to, to grow the Shiraz at a place where the Shiraz shouldn't be grown. Right. I mean, yeah. I will admit the Shiraz tasted excellent. Yeah. It was it just must have cost a fucking fortune per bottle to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And so are they doing, so those are their more specialty vineyards. So you're probably not getting the like machine harvesting and shit like that. Like that's, they're still no. harvesting. 100% yeah. by yeah. hand, which was brutal. Absolutely, bro. Wow. Wow. Like you'd just be covered in in grape juice. Bees would be all over you. I remember <laughs> I, I'd like wrap my cell phone up in multiple layers of saran wrap so that I didn't destroy it when I had to like answer a call or something. Oh wow, that's crazy. 
Yeah, but it sounds like a pretty cool experience, although taxing. It was ta- like, yeah, but like I learned a lot. I, like no. I actually really value that experience because it's it's not it's not an experience that everyone gets. No. And so, at what point do you decide you okay, you're going to give beer a crack? I guess like a lot of things in my life is kind of pragmatic, and me just not caring too much about the specific thing that I'm doing because I kind of find kind of find fun in all of it. Mm-hmm. So the reason I ended up in beer was partially just because I met my wife when I was going to Brock. Uh, she lived in Kitchener. And she had a good job in Kitchener. I also was ending my time at Brock when we had a, a series of extremely brutal winters that had just killed off a ton of grapevines in Niagara, which also meant that there just wasn't as much work as there oh, was. Okay. So someone like me who's just trying to start their career, it, it, I remember there was two months where I think between the two months, I got 80 hours. Yeah. And I was like, this is just not like this is not sustainable. So I said, like, whatever, like, I've got some experience home brewing. I have an education making wine. I'll move to Kitchener and I'll find a job at a brewery there, um, which is what happened. Oh, yeah. Nice. And so that was Grand River. Yeah. So I worked at Grand River and then ironically ended up uh, getting a job at Collective Arts about a year after Grand River and having to commute back to the Niagara because <laughs> Collective Arts is based out of Hamilton. So, oh, well. so what, tell me about your experience uh, in the beer, in making beer and what you liked about it compared to doing wine. Yeah, like beer, it's it's fun to make. The difficulty with making wine is because it takes so much longer, like you're still looking at like a relatively short fermentation for wine, like a few weeks. but you're only making wine at the time of year that you harvest the grapes. So there's effectively like a, a few months where you're making wine. Mm-hmm. And then you you have to do various things to that wine, like putting in barrels and stuff and age it to get the best out of it. You don't get to see as directly the impact that you have on the final product of, of the wine. Whereas like beer, like when I was working at Collective Arts, we were just brewing 24-7. So yeah, if I had a thought of like, hey, I could maybe improve this process a little bit by doing this. Well, I had ample opportunity to do it because my next shift, I would be brewing probably three beers because you start them like you use the the equipment as efficiently as possible. So at all times, you actually have three beers on the go occupying different vessels. It's probably a little bit confusing for people who've never made beer, but mm-hmm. it's it's almost like, um, it's almost like, I don't know what, like, I don't want to say a factory line, but it kind of is like, you do one process to the grain, move it to another vessel, and just keep kind of going along in five vessels and then put it into the fermenter. Right. That's interesting. Also, I my memory, and then it's pretty shitty, I'm not going to lie to you, especially <laughs> with every <laughs> every year and every beer. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but I, I mean, my memory is I owned a bar called White Rabbit back when Collective Arts was stored is still kind of coming up. And what I remembered about Collective Arts specifically was that they were kind of out there with a lot of the beer they were making, at least in comparison to the stuff we were getting at the time. Like they were sort of, at least in this area, it seemed like the forefront of kind of making like your sort of more flavored IPAs and into sours, etc. Yeah, I think they were definitely on the early side of that, particularly with within Ontario, because I I remember the same thing. Like before I, I worked for Collective Arts, they were one of the breweries that I'd most regularly purchase. Right. Yeah. They were making stuff that that other people weren't, or right. they were they were at least doing it better at the time. I think now everybody's kind of jumped onto that same IPA train. So oh, yeah. it's like, it's the only thing you can buy these days. But uh, uh, yeah. yeah, well, that's the thing. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well, because it's kind of like, I, I we talk about this all the time when we're just trying out beers or whatever, but it seems like 
there's just, you go and look at any Ontario craft and you're either, there's 1500 different kinds of IPA at various um, alcohol strength levels and uh, and whatever they're calling it, a certain flavor or whatever. Yeah, and I know, trying, you can't even yeah. keep them straight. Yeah, and like jamming as much hops into it as possible, like a lot of that. And then there's now like crazy flavored sours is the other thing. Like yeah. just, that it's just exploded. So many flavored sours. Yeah, and so is it... What do you? What is the reason behind this? Like, I have my own theory, but I honestly am very ignorant. So I'm just going to share my <laughs> my theory, and you can either debunk it or <laughs> agree with it, and then maybe have the potential to be a returning guest on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, my theory is that just like making a really hoppy IPA is kind of one of the easier things you can do, and so that's that doesn't take a lot of extra like an ingestion of, of money into the process to where you're really spending a lot more time with the craft. You just kind of jam a lot of hops into it and you can get a hoppy IPA. Whereas like some of these other, like it's actually kind of in a weird way harder to make a really unique, delicious lager. I 100% agree with that. Like, oh, I knew it. Like, <laughs> honestly, that used to be something that, that me and the other brewers would talk about regularly. It's just like, any, anybody like, well, especially these days, like starting out, there's always a knowledge gap, right? Like yeah. if, if something hasn't been made in your area, then it's going to be hard to be the first one to make it because you don't really have anybody else that you can lean on for like, Hey, I experienced X. What do I do to solve that? Right. Right. But like IPAs are certainly one of the more forgiving beers, especially the cloudy ones. Cause like, you don't even need to filter it. Yeah. And like <laughs> that for, for an IPA filtering could be half the battle. Like if you want to produce a crystal clear IPA that still has those gushing fruit flavors, well, that might be an actual challenge. Right. Right. And making a lager, as you said, like a, a good crisp lager. Like I remember I was still at collective arts when they started making lagers and it was a real challenge for us because we didn't have any of the equipment that, that, we, were, we just weren't prepared with, with regards to the equipment that we had to start making loggers. So it was a lot of like, oh, shit, we didn't anticipate that. What are we going to do about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like we managed to find ways. But I remember literally stealing equipment from like one part of the brewery to be able to use in the brewing side so that we, we could we could efficiently cool down the, the lager to, to get it to the proper temperature for fermentation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So that, that does check out then. Well, I'm glad that that makes me feel a lot better. But <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from beer now, you, you finally decide you're going to make a more of a jump into distilling. And it sounds like you were just kind of maybe doing this on the side for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it was always my intention to open the distillery. So it wasn't just like I was, I wasn't just kind of doing it without, without intention behind it. But I just didn't know, like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I didn't know how long it was going to take me. And like I said, like, I mean, I was in school for like a decade and, and I was, I was, uh, I was on the hook for all that, that schooling. So like I I came out in huge amounts of debt and it's like, I don't don't have the money to bankroll a a distillery. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of trying to build momentum with it, kind of figure out how to make it happen as it went along. And, uh, slowly but surely we kind of got there and i mean it's still a challenge every day and we're still really very much in the growth phase but uh mm-hmm. when, when did you open the distillery i, w- I would i would say that like w- the distillery really started in october of 2020 oh so yeah. september october like we're still getting the distillery set up because like we were slated to start opening up like in i remember february was when i started to spend february of 2020 was when i started to spend some real time there just getting the shop set up and everything and then, of course, March hit. And it was like, 
well, fuck. Like, yeah, we were small enough that it, it literally just decimated any sales opportunities for our spirits because all the bars and restaurants were shut down. Yeah. As, as, as you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had gotten two products, our gin and our vodka accepted to the LCBO, but they also told us like they're accepted, but we're not taking new products right now because we don't want people going in and selling to the managers. So like we will carry your spirits, <laughs> But until we've got this COVID stuff figured out, we're not we're not going to be carrying your spirits. So our only real avenue of sales was uh, our online store, which is like how many how many bottles of gin can you possibly sell through an online store? Right, especially when people don't know who the fuck you are yet. Well, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like the only people that were ever buying off of us were friends and family. Right, and well, then that's the way it feels like my bar is like now too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you can sympathize. Yeah, exactly. So I mean we'd occasionally get like a random purchaser who heard through us through some random channel, but we'd all get excited. Like, Oh, somebody who, who we don't know about a bottle. This is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah. So COVID came and it, it just, we couldn't do anything with the spirits at that point. It was just like, wow. I mean, we, we kind of started the hand sanitizers, just an interesting little like, Hey, let's help out the cause. Sure. Uh, but it just kind of like blew up. Like there was such high demand for it and we got everything in like all our ducks in a row. So we, we managed to kind of limp along doing some hand sanitizer and stuff. But like the spirits was effectively dead until September, mm. October when we were actually able to sell it to the LCBO. Right. Hey, did, make it, did making the hand sanitizer help promote the business though as well? I don't know like if we made the right choice or not. We actually did the hand sanitizer under a different brand name. Oh, um, I see. Because... We were a little worried of the close association of hand sanitizer and spirits, especially for such yeah, a, a young brand. Right. I don't know if it was the right call or not. I, I just know that I'm happy to be making spirits again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does yeah. make sense, actually. I can see people saying, yeah, this tastes like the hand sanitizer. Well, right? yeah, Even though yeah. it doesn't. But yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't need yeah. that asshole thing. No. There was a lot of decisions made very quickly when the hand sanitizer stuff was coming up that we just had to like we were a small company that w weren't really ready to be getting labels made up within like a week. Like we just did not have that infrastructure. So like all of my partners and I really rallied together, but like it was an extremely trying few months because everybody was already had a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And now we're basically had another full-time job, just trying to make a go of this hand sanitizer and keep, keep the distillery alive. Well, and everybody was making just crazy fast decisions at that time as well, right? Exactly. So, um, and I, then I think like almost the sanitizer uh, market got oversaturated a little bit as oh, well. Oh, 100%. Like, like I've been, the grocery store that I shop at, I think has had the same 800 boxes of hand sanitizer <laughs> for yeah. the past seven months well people also like there was at the beginning it was like oh you can't touch anything you can't touch anything and then it was more like no cover your face so like <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly so, right? um, certainly the sales went down so yeah that's kind of i mean that's a, a crazy sort like that's a lot to happen to a small business right from the jump you'd barely have time to get your feet underneath you and then covid hits and that fucks you over now you're making hand sanitizer but it's good that you were able to last it out and now we're back to making spirits. And I mean, I know I'm sure you'll miss the labor of love of the sanitizer. Oh, but. every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we sort of got got ta talking about it at the beginning. But do you have any plans for new products in the future or have you not just really even gotten that far? You're just happy to be back to making what you were making. Yeah, honestly, I've been playing a little bit of catch up. I'm, mm -hmm. I've, we're starting to get at a place where I think we're we're. We're in a better place now where where we're starting to be able to plan for the future. 
but it's taken a little bit to even kind of catch up from just all of the chaos that happened because we started selling at the LCBO in in October and like before so we started our gin in October and then our vodka in late January or early February Wow. And like the vodka, I'd only ever actually made like the samples to go to the LCBO for approval. <laughs> so like, right, yeah. I was like, well, how do I even scale this up? Like right, I, yeah. I sent them a couple <laughs> bottles, but like now I need to do this on a much larger scale. Yeah. So like a lot of it's just been like, I have to figure these things out like re- relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, yeah, that, that's what you're going to be working on for the foreseeable future for sure. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about the LCBO for a little bit because uh, everybody I know who's gotten into this game either um, reps for small wineries or for people who are brewing or people who are distilling. There's constantly this issue with the LCBO, getting trying to get your product in there. And then once you even get it in there, trying to get them to like shelve it in a way that people know where the fuck it is and how to find it. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that our, the agency that we have who's doing our sales to the LCBO, they've done an excellent job. Like every LCBO that I've seen our product in i couldn't really ask for better placement oh that's good that said like covid's still posing a significant challenge because like we're a brand new brand how do we make people aware of us well mm-hmm. normally we'd go into the lcbo we would do tastings with staff not an option right we go into the lcbo we do tastings with patrons not an option no the, the real challenge that we've had is like how do we get people to know us how do we get to people to try us when we can't even offer samples anywhere. Like there's no yeah. events that we can do samples at. <laughs> no, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> like one thing you could maybe that, that other places have done with some success is maybe partner with like a, a bar or something like that to do like a night at the bar where you're kind of handing out samples and you're making cocktails with them or something like that. That's maybe an option. Yeah, that would be a really cool idea. I think uh, we talked about that uh, a little bit at one of our meetings, actually. Something like that would be super cool. Well, hit me up, man. We're always looking for new stuff to do at Sugar Run. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to bring some by and see what we can do. You know what? I think that maybe somebody did bring some. Do you, is there a, a Kevin Cormier as well? Kyle. Ky- Kyle Cormier? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, I think he was there like what? He was there before COVID, right? Yeah, but it was just before, I think. And that's like, so he came by, we tried it. And then it was kind of like oh, everything went to shit. And we're like, nobody's buying anything well, at yeah. that point, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Just kind of dropped off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we should reconnect on that. Um, no, yeah, for sure. This is we're just doing business on the podcast sure, now. This is, <laughs> this is what the fans come for. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's awesome that uh, you managed to at least make it to the other side of this. So many places happen, especially when you were you really just started pretty close to when the pandemic hit. So that makes it extra tough. But uh, I remember vaguely tasting the product. It's delicious. And I think you guys are going to do well. It's just, um, like you said, figuring out the marketing strategy and how to get some uh, tastings going. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what's, yeah, what's the website again? Uh, so it's pepperelldistilling.com. So P-E-P-P-R-E-L-L distilling. Perfect. And there'll be links in the show notes, as always, to that. All right. Well, thanks, Josh. We appreciate you coming on and talking about uh, Pepperell. And, and again, all the best. And yeah, yeah, hit me up and we'll, we'll figure something out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll work something out. Yeah, thanks okay. a lot for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Cool. Thank thanks, you. Bob. All right. Okay. Thanks.